Good evening. So over the course of this retreat so far, I've been giving you a, a kind of a, do they still say tiki tour? It's probably not very appropriate, but a, one of those little whirlwind tours of the four establishments of mindfulness and the four Brahma-viharas, which are key practices in the insight tradition that lead us in the direction of freedom. And so over the course of this retreat, we've been touching into some of the many practices laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta. And tonight I want to take a little bit more time to explore some from the fourth establishment of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of dhammas, sometimes translated as categories of experience. And this fourth establishment of mindfulness includes many numbered lists, far too many to go into now. But for the purposes of our practice here, I want to highlight just a couple of those lists. So the first you're already familiar with, the five hindrances that I spoke about in two of the talks earlier on in the retreat. These are the various afflictive states of mind, that get in the way of seeing clearly. And I focus particularly on the first two, being desire for sense pleasure and aversion or ill will. And if we had more time, I'd talk about the other three hindrances, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. But because this is a fairly short retreat, just nine days in which to cover an entire lifetime of practice, I felt like in the service of balance, I want to take at least some time to touch in more to the non-afflictive states. Those, for example, the skillful states of the four Brahmaviharas that we've been exploring in the guided meditations in the afternoon kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. And then specifically in relation to insight practice, the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment. And these are profoundly beneficial qualities of mind that support clear seeing, that support insight. So you may or may not remember in the guided standing meditation this morning, I ran through each of them fairly quickly towards the end of that meditation. And I'd like to give you a quick reminder of what these seven are again now. I know some of you have heard these talks, so it be a useful refresher. But as you hear this list, you might just tune in to your body, your heart-mind, and notice which of them feel relevant, feel alive in your practice right now, and which of them might seem a little less relevant, or less apparent. So the first one, anyone remember? Mindfulness. Yes, very good. First one is mindfulness. So is mindfulness present right now or not? And just by asking the question, we've re-engaged with the present moment. So that's a very easy yes. Got the first one. The second one. Investigation. investigation. Thank you. Technically, investigation of dhammas. 
So investigation, we can ask, is there interest and curiosity about my experience? Or am I a bit zoned out, disconnected, disengaged? And again, just asking the question about investigation is itself investigation. So we have another easy success there. The third one, energy. Thank you. Virya. So how's the energy right now? Too much? Not enough? Just right? Am I sinking into sloth and torpor or revving up into restlessness and worry? Or if not, what does balanced energy feel like? Fourth factor, joy. Pali word is pity. Joy or rapture, sometimes translated as rapt interest. Can I find joy in this experience? And if joy is a stretch, then anything that's in the terrain of appreciation. What can I appreciate about my experience right now? So that's one reason in the mindful movement I was asking you quite often, what can you enjoy about this experience right now? Just to begin to incline the mind in that direction. Fifth one, yes, tranquility. Is tranquility present or not? That quality of ease and calm that I've been emphasizing in a lot of the guided meditations, what does that feel like in the body and the heart-mind? Sixth one, samadhi, thank you. Stability of mind, unification of mind, absorption, non-distractibility. So you can check right now how focused or steady or stable is the mind right now. Is it undistracted or is it scattered? And lastly... Equanimity, yes, you get the prize. <laughs> so equanimity, evenness of heart-mind, balance, acceptance, ease, the mind not pulled into wanting, not pushed into not wanting, but staying steady. So that's just a very quick overview of these seven factors and obviously many of you are somewhat familiar with them. So I wanted to give you the list so you can get a sense of what they are relative to the five hindrances because there is a reciprocal relationship between the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. So to put it very simply, when the hindrances are present then by definition, the awakening factors are absent. And vice versa, when the, when the awakening factors are present, then the hindrances are absent. So it's good news then that there are only five hindrances and there are seven awakening factors. So the good guys outnumber the bad guys. 
And as I keep pointing to uh, inviting you to acknowledge in the context of your own practice, even over the course of this retreat, just to notice how the supportive conditions here, the moving into silence, to solitude, to slowing down, to stilling, then almost of its own accord, when we surrender to those conditions, the mind starts to release the hindrances and to strengthen the awakening factors. And I know from talking to each of you in the individual meetings that all of you have seen that transition happening to some extent. So again, as I mentioned last night, if you think back to the first day or two of the retreat compared to now, very different. I sometimes wish we had some kind of high-tech device that could take a kind of snapshot of the psyche on day one and then day three and now so you could get some quantifiable measurement. Nevertheless, even without quantified measurements, I'm sure you can feel for yourselves that there has been that shift. So before I go into these awakening factors, each one in a little bit more detail, I'd like to talk about them more generally and in terms of their purpose on this path. So they're called awakening factors or enlightenment factors because when all seven of them are strong and equally in balance, they provide the optimum conditions for deep insights to arise the kind of insights that lead to awakening or enlightenment, liberation, freedom, nibbana or nirvana to use the Sanskrit. So although nibbana is the whole goal, the purpose of insight practice, there are a lot of misconceptions about what terms such as nibbana or even insight, vipassana, actually refer to. So just in terms of what these key terms actually mean, to begin with the word insight, the usual English translation of the Pali word Vipassana, which literally means clear seeing or seeing distinctly or seeing separately. And so as we are able to do this and we start to see clearly the insights, as I said the other night, in the beginning tend to be more on the personal and the psychological level. We understand our own conditioning, our personal histories, our psychological habit patterns, and we start to see through some of the ways that we get caught in identification with our experience so that we can release that clinging and live with more ease. And then as the practice progresses, we start to understand that everything we experience is, another pop quiz, impermanent, yes. Anyone else? Impersonal. And the middle one, imperfect, dukkha. You guys are good. That's why I don't need to give the rest of this talk. So... Impermanent, imperfect or unsatisfactory, impersonal or not-self. 
And as these insights strengthen, we're able to let go into deeper and deeper experiences of freedom. Whatever level we're practicing at, though, the purpose of insight is to reduce suffering. So I appreciate the way the English Dharma teacher Robert Bayer defines insight in his book, Seeing That Frees. He begins by uh, defining it quite loosely as any realization, understanding, or way of seeing things that brings to any degree a dissolution of or decrease in dukkha. So that's how we can know whether something is an insight or not. Has it to any degree diminished dukkha, suffering, stress, distress? And it reminds us that the point of all of this effort is to free the heart and mind from suffering. It's not about trying to have some kind of esoteric or far-out experience to impress our teachers or our friends or ourselves. And yet this is a very common misperception of what this practice is about, particularly when we hear words such as awakening or enlightenment or liberation or nibbana. These words might sound quite abstract distant, exotic, or for some people, completely meaningless. For others, there might be a a vague idea of Nibbana as maybe one day getting there, in quotation marks, at some point in the far distant future. But right here and now, the idea of Nibbana doesn't sound very relevant or appealing. Other people might have some interest in the idea of Nibbana, but there can be an unconscious belief that it's going to take decades of battling with the hindrances and slogging through the defilements and releasing the afflictive energies before there's ever any hope of experiencing anything remotely like freedom. So just pointing to, especially at the beginning of practice, it's common for people to assume that Nibbana is something remote and mysterious and not really that applicable to their own practice, and that it might even be presumptuous or arrogant to think that it might be. And so people sometimes avoid exploring the awakening factors because they assume, oh, that must be a practice for advanced meditators. So I want to emphasize the point I think I made in one of my earlier talks that there's one very practical definition of Nibbana that is the heart-mind free from greed, free from hatred, free from ignorance. In other words, free from the three root poisons or defilements, afflictive energies. And with this definition of nibbana it's something that we can experience for ourselves at least in moments when the heart and mind are temporarily free of these afflictive states and those moments might be fleeting perhaps just nanoseconds but as we learn to recognize them to strengthen them over time they become more and more the default setting of the mind So from this perspective, Nibbana is not a big bang experience where we achieve some kind of sudden and radical transformation and emerge in a state of permanent bliss. It's not a static state that we get, 
but it's a process that we're all going through. So that's one reason I prefer the term awakening to the term enlightenment. Because enlightenment is a noun, so it suggests that nibbana is a state or a place, whereas awakening is a verb, it's an action that happens or a process, a process of letting go of the hindrances and strengthening the awakening factors. So Bhikkhu Analio, the German scholar monk that I've referred to a few times, he wrote his PhD on the Satipatthana Sutta, and he makes the point that all the different practices included in the four establishments of mindfulness are aimed at developing these seven factors of awakening. So all those different techniques are different ways of preparing the mind for the awakening factors to arise. And there are a couple of quotes from the suttas that really highlight the importance of developing these awakening factors. So one says, Practitioners, the seven factors of awakening, when developed and cultivated, are noble and emancipating. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. Letting that in, the practices that we're doing here on retreat are noble. They're emancipating, they're freeing us from suffering. So we could think of that as the carrot approach, enticing us forward. But there are other suttas that take more of the stick approach. So this next one is a bit more earthy. A certain monk approached the Buddha and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, quote, An unwise dolt, an unwise dolt. In what way, Venerable Sir, is one called an unwise dolt? So dolt is an old-fashioned word for an idiot or a stupid person or a fool. And the Buddha said, it is because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of awakening that one is called an unwise dolt. So if we want to avoid being unwise dolts, we need to know when the awakening factors are present, which means learning to recognize them, learning to get familiar with them and know how they feel in the body, the heart, the mind. So I'd like to go through them again now in a little bit more detail. And <laughs> something amusing? Okay, so yes, this is the practice of not being an unwise adult. So the first one is, again, as we go through them, when you hear them a second time, <coughs> notice how they resonate in your experience this time, because even in the last few minutes, the mind will have changed. So first up, mindfulness or sati. And mindfulness is key because that's, that's what helps us recognize the presence or absence of the hindrances and the presence or absence of the awakening factors. And in the suttas it said what makes mindfulness an awakening factor is that it's unremitting. So I mentioned this at the start of the retreat. Unremitting means continuous. 
And that's why all through the retreat, I've been emphasizing moment to moment awareness across every activity, not only here in the hall in the formal sittings and walkings, but every other activity in the in-betweenings. And it's possible, as some of you know, um, that when people on retreat develop this unremitting mindfulness, they're able to know whether they fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath and whether they wake up on the in-breath or the out-breath. So one analogy that's sometimes used for this unremittingness is like boiling a pot of water. Pretty obvious if you put a burst of flame under a pan of water and then turn it off and walk away and then some random time come back later and give it a bit more heat and then turn it off, the pot will never boil. And it actually takes a lot more effort with that stop-start mindfulness. But if we just turn on a steady flame and have that be continuous and sustainable, it's a lot less effort for the psyche and the results are... um, more attainable because of that unremitting or steady mindfulness. So the first awakening factor, mindfulness, has a very important role in helping us to connect with our experience. And then the next one, investigation of dhammas, may sound a little bit more obscure, but the word dhammas is another of those Pali words that has multiple different meanings. In this context, it refers to phenomena, all the ways we experience the world, and also in terms of the Buddha's teachings. So with this factor, we're investigating our experience and interpreting according to the Buddha's teachings in the light of the three characteristics. So in some of the guided meditations or in the meetings with you, I've encouraged you, especially if there's things like afflictive emotions. So if we're finding recurrent mind states coming back, we train ourselves to know them as arising due to conditions, passing due to conditions, not me, not mine, not who I am. So sometimes even that more intellectual or cognitive reminder when we're in the grip of some kind of recurrent mind state can help us to see it's impermanent and it's impersonal. Likewise, the three questions that I have offered you a few times, what's happening in the body, what's happening in the heart-mind, how am I relating to this experience, That's another example of bringing investigation to bear on our experience. And with that last question, how am I relating to the experience, or what's the attitude in the mind, that can reveal the presence of the hindrances, some kind of wanting, some kind of resisting, some kind of zoning out. When we do investigate like that, It can raise energy in the mind, which is the third factor, the factor of energy or virya. And again, this energy needs to be balanced so that it's sustainable over time. 
So I may have mentioned before, most of us, many of us have a very binary approach to our energy and we tend to really push and strive and that's not sustainable. So then we collapse back into exhausted apathy and then at some point we get our energy back and again we overshoot the mark and then we get exhausted and it's very difficult for us to find that middle way. So a big training in working with energy is being able to have it more sustainable and continuous. And in the discourses, it's described as unshakable energy. And as many of you have noticed, at least in the beginning, it takes quite some energy to get the momentum of practice going. But as that momentum gathers, it can take on an almost effortless quality. At times, it almost feels like we're surfing a wave. So again, using the metaphor of a surfer, there's that burst of energy to catch the wave. But when we're on the wave, we don't need to keep swimming. We can just stand and you know, go with that forward momentum. And it takes very little energy other than just the energy to keep our balance. So when we do happen to come into one of those phases where the effort has become more effortless the next awakening factor often arises very naturally and that's joy or pity sometimes translated as rapture or rapt interest and the joy that's referred to here is a very refined mental quality it isn't the kind of happiness that comes from sense pleasures and because it's a mental happiness, it's more sustainable than ordinary sense-based pleasantness that might come from eating a bowl of pavlova, for example. Most of us might be able to eat one, maybe two, possibly three bowls of pavlova before we start to feel a bit sick. But when joy is present as an awakening factor, it can be sustained for many hours, sometimes even days, without much effort. So this joy can be experienced in different ways, sometimes as a ripple or thrill of delight or a sort of subtle shivering or sometimes the body sways a little or rocks a little and there can be different kinds of pleasant sensations throughout the whole body. And then over time, as these awakening factors continue to steady and stabilize, the joy gives way to tranquility, which is a profound calmness of body and mind. And it's a direct antidote to the hindrance of restlessness and worry. But perhaps because it is quite a refined and subtle state, it can take a bit of getting used to at first. Most of us... <laughs> Most of us are not used to calm that's so deep. And sometimes it can seem as if not much is going on and we might feel a little bit spacey or unfocused. So tranquility, by definition, is a quiet state and that can be quite easy to overlook. 
And I found sometimes when I'm going through these seven factors in my own practice or when I'm preparing talks like this, quite often tranquility is the one I forget. I get six of the seven and often it's tranquility that I miss out. And that can be a useful exercise in your practice too, just from time to time to run through and see if you cut which one of the seven or two you might not remember because usually that's the one that needs a little more strengthening. So tranquility is this quality of profound stillness and calm and it leads naturally into samadhi, the next factor of awakening. And as I've been emphasizing Although samadhi is usually translated as concentration, I've been trying to avoid that term because it has a connotation of forced and narrowed and fixated attention. So a more accurate translation is that quality of indistractability, unwavering, stable awareness, or absorption in the sense that the mind is completely absorbed in whatever the object it's paying attention to is and the attention just doesn't move anywhere. And most of you have had some experience of the mind becoming a little more stable like this and what a relief it is. We don't often realize when we're out in ordinary life just how bombarded we are by sense contacts stimulated over and over again by sights and sounds and smells and touch and thoughts and thousands of times a second. And we don't even recognize the impact all of that has on the nervous system until we have an experience of its absence. When we come on retreat and that starts to settle out, the mind becomes more stable. And so the awakening factor of samadhi gives the nervous system a rest, a deep rest. So its experience is very refreshing. So at this point in the retreat, many of you have had some taste of samadhi and appreciate what a precious resource it is. And then from this deepening of samadhi, the mind settles even further into the last factor, which is equanimity, upekka. This is the mind that is perfectly balanced, deeply at ease, not clinging to anything in the world, as it says in the refrain to the Satipatthana Sutta. It's not clinging to anything, nor is it pushing anything away. It's just at rest, aware, poised, but not reacting, no, not even a ripple of reactivity. So it's a very refined state of mind, and even the subtle vibrations of energy and joy have subsided. So this state can be sustained for even longer than the previous ones. And just... A little bit of a caveat, sometimes people, when they hear about equanimity as non-reactivity, they mistake it for being a state of disconnection or um, disengagement or somehow numbing out. But true equanimity is alert and alive. There's a fine energetic quality to it. 
And it's this that allows the deepest insights to arise. So again, still a fairly brief overview of these awakening factors. I wanted to uh, give you that overview now because sometimes when people move into the terrain of skillful mind states, there can be almost phases of confusion because we've become, most of us are so used to wrestling with the hindrances and trying to overcome the defilements and, you know, getting through all the different forms of mental proliferation that we tend to get caught in that uh, when these hindrances finally start to weaken and at times even disappear altogether, we might suddenly think, well, now what? (laughs) Nothing's happening. And people will actually come into meetings and say, well, what do I do now? Nothing's happening. Nothing's going on. And again, that just reveals our unconscious addiction to doing, to having, to achieving, to attaining. So when there's nothing to do in terms of wrestling with challenges in the practice, we can feel a little bit lost or confused. So sometimes when people say, well, nothing's happening, I say, well, what's that nothing like? Can you try to describe it? And they might say, well, it's it's kind of calm. Oh. And the mind feels steady. Okay. And it is, yeah, it's, there's a trace of pleasantness. And then you re- then they start to realize they're actually in the terrain of some of the awakening factors. But because they're new and unfamiliar, the mindfulness hasn't quite refined enough to recognize these more subtle, skillful qualities. Sometimes, too, when we come into this more skillful terrain, it starts to real- uh, reveal deep conditioning around being addicted to drama. So many of us are very caught in the highs and we're caught in the highs and lows of life and we're used to even the unpleasant intensity sometimes feels preferable to the non-intensity of that mid-range. So when the practice settles into a more stable and quiet phase, we might find ourselves trying to get some of that familiar intensity back by pushing or forcing or striving in various ways. So it's useful to start recognizing how it feels to have a mind without lust or greed, without anger or fear, without delusion or ignorance. So the absence of these difficult mind states might not last very long, but when we are in one of those cycles of what we might call purity, it starts to release some of what are sometimes called our karmic knots, so those deeply conditioned entanglements of afflictive emotions and thought patterns and habits that kind of keep us wrestling And so sometimes these karmic knots start to unravel a little 
and it can even feel like we're falling apart because our usual defense mechanisms and personality habits and self-protection strategies are starting to dissolve. And we might suddenly find ourselves feeling like we're on shaky ground. And I've noticed in my own practice at these times that there can be some opening to a new experience and then almost a kind of internal backlash to this newfound spaciousness. And one symptom of this backlash is that the habit mind suddenly goes into overdrive and starts telling itself all kinds of ridiculous stories and getting lost in full-blown fantasies and creating imaginary doomsday scenarios and anything at all to sabotage this shift into a more open way of being. So this phase of the practice can at times feel quite uncomfortable because it's a phase of transition or metamorphosis, almost like being an adolescent again. There's that awkwardness of puberty before we get used to our newly adult bodies and hearts and minds. Or perhaps more poetically, we can think of that transition as the caterpillar transforming into the butterfly. But even with that metaphor, we can understand when the butterfly first emerges from the tight confines of the cocoon, it needs to rest and to allow the soft structure of its wings to dry off and harden before it can fly. So if we do experience a sense of transition accompanied by shakiness or groundlessness or fear, then the best thing we can do is offer ourselves immense patience and kindness. And to whatever extent we can, trust that everything we're experiencing is a natural unfolding. So as some of you know, apparently in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's used to uh, refer to meditation literally means getting used to it. And so I like that idea of meditation as getting used to it. And we can interpret that in a lot of different ways. But in my own practice, in those difficult phases, I think, okay, well, meditation is simply a practice of getting used to it. So likewise, as the practice develops and we start to taste these experiences of the mind being at least temporarily free of afflictive states, these are what we call um, phases of purity. The mind is clear, settled, stable, still, and so on. And as I mentioned earlier, often though we experience a kind of backlash and some of you have reported this in the individual meetings that oh, yesterday it was wonderful, I was calm, there was clarity, there was ease. I don't know what went wrong because today it's just been all over the place and we find ourselves seething with resentment or bored out of our brains or incredibly irritated and frustrated. And the usual response is to think, where did I go wrong? How do I get back to that bliss and calm that I had yesterday? So this is what's euphemistically called the purification phase. And it's when those more afflictive states suddenly seem to come back with a vengeance. And again, it's not that we've done something wrong. It's actually a byproduct 
of having touched into that stillness and calm and purity. So again, with this metaphor of the muddy pond water, when the sediment settles, it's because of that clarity that the next level of detritus of muck can start bubbling up. And so when we see that, rather than reacting to it, can we meet that with kindness and understand, okay, that's what now needs to be metabolized, integrated, digested. So we go through that process of working with whatever that backlash kind of experience was. We manage to integrate it. The mind settles. There's another phase of clarity and purity and stillness. And we think, okay, now I'm on track. Back on track. Great. Got it. And of course, what happens? (laughs) The next level of stuff comes bubbling up. So learning to recognize that this is a natural and expected pattern that happens on retreat rather than a problem can allow us to make more space for it. So again, making a bigger container, knowing that these are the natural cycles, the swing of the pendulum. And if we don't hold on to the pendulum quite so tightly, we won't go for a wild ride. We can just recognize (coughs) this is part of the process. So all of us here have in moments been experiencing tastes of these awakening factors coming into play. They might not be particularly strong or stable or steady, but, you know, as Bhikkhu Analyo says, they're little buds, but buds have immense power to flower and to grow and to become, to bear great fruit. And there's a natural, lawful unfolding with this process. And paradoxically, what helps it to continue is getting out of the way. So coming back to anatta, to not-self, the more we can see that this practice is happening through me, and at times in spite of me, the more we can keep getting out of the way, and not interfering, not micromanaging, not controlling or directing, the easier time we'll have of it, and the more the Dharma can do its work, the more freedom can free us. So this is a natural process. And there's a sutta that captures this very clearly that I've shared with some of you before, but it really points to the effortless effort that is needed as the practice deepens. So it's the Chaitana Sutta. You might recognize that word Chaitana from our standing meditation practice this morning. Chaitana meaning volition, impulse. And in this Sutta, it's talking about Chaitana as an act of will. So it says... For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. 
For a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse. For a joyful person, there is no need for an act of will. May rapture arise in me. It is in the nature of things that rapture arises in a joyful person. For a rapturous person, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is in the nature of things that a rapturous person grows serene in body. For a person serene in body, there is no need for an act of will. May I experience pleasure. It is in the nature of things that a person serene in body experiences pleasure. For a person experiencing pleasure, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind grow concentrated. It is in the nature of things that the mind of a person experiencing pleasure grows concentrated. For a person whose mind is concentrated, there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they actually are. It is in the nature of things that a person whose mind is concentrated knows and sees things as they actually are. For a person who knows and sees things as they actually are, there is no need for an act of will. May I feel disenchantment. It is in the nature of things that a person who knows and sees things as they actually are feels disenchantment. For a person who feels disenchantment, there is no need for an act of will. May I grow dispassionate. It is in the nature of things that a person who feels disenchantment grows dispassionate. For a dispassionate person, there is no need for an act of will. May I realize the knowledge and vision of release. It is in the nature of things that a dispassionate person realizes the knowledge and vision of release. So in one way, that's a laying out of the whole path that starts with commitment to non-harming and then refines and releases clinging on deeper and deeper levels until, as it says in the end, we go from the near to the further shore. And the further shore is another epithet for Nibbana. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to develop what is conducive to benefit and to pleasure so that we might experience the deepest freedom of heart and mind, the complete destruction of suffering. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.